Attention, attention please, stand by for another episode of When Humanists Attack. Hi everybody, uh, my name is Vincent Downing for When Humanists Attack. We are a 501c3 incorporated in the state of Vermont, and we are here tonight, as usual, to celebrate a, an astounding and astonishing human being who is doing great work to make a better world founded on what we believe to be common values that we have with, uh, with him and with the, the other people in his movement. Uh, this is Robert Robinson, who is speaking to us, representing the Partners for Dignity and Rights, but he also works internationally with other organizations. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You've got an interesting story of experiencing the housing crisis, uh, homelessness versus homefulness uh, from, the, from the inside. Thanks again for having me. Just uh, for a little context and background, I was raised in a working class family on Long Island, um, worked for a Fortune 500 company called Automatic Data Processing which is a payroll company and, as I said, a Fortune 500 company. And I started there as a, a teleservice rep, taking payrolls over the phone and doing the customer service work once the payroll was delivered to the client. I eventually worked myself up to a project management position overseeing a piece of software that ADP said would move it into the new millennium. And in 2001, I was asked by the organization to move to Miami, Florida, to beta test this new piece of software. And with very little short notice, I picked up my life, moved to Miami, Florida in March of 2001. July 2001, I was called into the general manager's office and told, there's no more money in the budget for your position. We're going to have to let you go. And the rest is sort of a struggle. I uh, spiraled into homelessness after exhausting severance pay and unemployment and going through a bank account. And before you know it, I'm on the streets of Miami, where I survived for about two and a half years, found myself back to New York City, spent 10 months in the New York City homeless shelter. And that just propelled me. I, I call the whole process a transformation, but that transformation propelled me into organizing where I started my work with a group called Picture the Homeless based in New York City, which organized homeless and formerly homeless people. That's quite a transformation. You had originally come from a very materialistic, capitalistic culture of acquire, acquire, acquire. The more money, the better. The more this, the better. The more that, the better. Was this something that you picked up from your family, from the culture around you? I think it's all of that, Vincent. We all aspired at one point to, uh, to the American dream. My family certainly did. My dad moved my family from Brooklyn in 1962 to Long Island. People thought we were rich, right? My dad worked 16 hours a day, probably to pay off a predatory loan that he took out to buy the house. But, you know, there's, there's always dreams, right? You work hard and you're going to achieve, right? Forget that the United States practiced stuff like redlining and predatory lending, right, that, that makes you not achieve that dream that everybody wants to. But at the same time, my dad's working the 16 hours a day, looking to buy a new car, looking to build up the house, challenging the neighbors around him, right? Everybody wants more. But that's the culture that we all come up in, right? And you work hard, you'll achieve, right? And, you know, I found myself doing that. And I think the interesting part for me was my role, um, when I worked for automatic data processing, it was out on Long Island. So I did what we call a reverse commute. I would get up early in the morning, travel into Penn Station. I lived in East Harlem at the time and take a train out to Long Island and go to work. On the way back, I get off the train. There's Macy's on 34th Street across from Penn Station. I go get a new suit. I once won an award at ADP, the best dressed male at ADP. So you're always trying to achieve and do better and play the game, the capitalistic game of, you know, they sell you stuff, you you get employed, you know, they they use you for your labor, 
but you're not benefiting from it. Yeah, I got some stock shares and, you know, there were a couple of bones thrown at me. But I also saw what a big company like that can do to its workers, right? I was just readily dismissed after 13 years of working for a, a company. And then you're put out to the street. And that was part of what I call the transformation. Okay, I acquired all of this stuff. I bought into the narratives. But now, all of a sudden, I'm homeless and nobody wants to help me. Well, you're worthless, right? And the narrative is you're homeless because you don't have an education. You're homeless because you don't want to work. You're homeless because you have a chemical or alcohol addiction. Well, I went homeless after working 35 years. I worked since I was nine years old. I have a college degree. I'm not addicted to alcohol or drugs. So those narratives are myths. And I need to reconstruct a new narrative. And that was part of that transformation. And I've been on that mission ever since. How long did that take? It was a process, right? So I, I lost a job. I had unemployment. I had a little sense of security. I had severance pay. But what I also found out is I hadn't done any homework. So this job was in Miami. And Miami was going through tough economic times in the early 2000s. I didn't do my homework. I didn't investigate. I couldn't find a job. And I found that everywhere I went to look for a job, I was a confident guy. I worked myself up through ADP. I could find a job anywhere. But when people looked at my resume, I, I remember once in a, in a fit of desperation, I went to a Kmart and said, I'll work here. And as I was being interviewed, the supervisor looks at my resume and he goes, $38 for an hour? I could actually get two Cubans and a Haitian for that money. And that was a, an awakening for me. And it said there's some insensitivity in this world. There's a struggle in this world. But at the same time, while I'm homeless and living on the beach, I'm watching these luxury towers go up in Miami. And people are saying, well, that's part of gentrification. I didn't understand that word. But those luxury towers would have signs on them that said, you know, new condominiums coming, uh, studios starting at 1.2 million. And then I noticed over the period of time that I'm traveling back and forth to the beach where I slept, the bunting changes and it says for rent. Sign a one year's lease and get two months free rent. So something is happening in our society. By the time I got to New York, I'm 10 months in a New York City homeless shelter. Well, I don't want to sit in a shelter every day. I'm going to go to the library and let me study this thing called gentrification. And I educated myself and I came up with this conclusion, this theoretical conclusion after what I went through, what I saw in Miami and what people were going through here in New York. I said gentrification leads to displacement, which leads to criminalization, which leads to homelessness. I need to do something about that. I need to change the narrative. And that's, you know, where I am today, working to change that narrative, sharing my story, saying, okay, those dreams that we all aspire to are somewhat mythical. They don't exist. I say very loudly now, home ownership today could be the way to perpetual debt. Kind of set up for us to fail at this point. My own personal uh, focus is always on the the individual transformation part of uh, of changing the world. So you had to go from accepting the the story you had been told, which was acquire, work hard, and you'll be a success. And if you're not doing that, you're a failure. You have failed, not the system, but you have failed. You had to get yourself out of that. Did that happen first and then you decided to learn about gentrification in the library in New York City? No, I think it was parallel, um, Vincent. So, you know, I, I look back as I got to New York, right? I never told my family on Long Island that I was homeless in Miami for the two and a half years I was there. I was the first one to graduate high school and, and a university in my family. And I was always considered, quote, unquote, the smart one, right? If there was a family problem, my dad would say, go to your brother. He'll figure it out. He's got a college degree. He went, you know, he graduated high school. So I, in Miami, I said, I got to figure this out. They're not going to be able to help me. So I never told them. 
And as a matter of fact, on the way back to New York, I had some outreach workers in Miami put me on a bus trip back to New York. And the last part of that bus trip was to transfer from Port Authority in New York City to take a bus out to Hempstead, Long Island. And I didn't like the way I looked. I looked a little unkempt. And I went in the bathroom at Port Authority and said, OK, I can't go to my family. I don't want them to see me like this. And I asked an employee in, inside of Port Authority, is there a shelter or someplace I could go to clean up? And he said, there's a shelter across the street. I went in there and I spent 10 months in there. But, you know, a shelter is a place where some people who weren't as fortunate as me to have a life prior to going homeless. So there was a lot of things that I did have, right? I had a family, I had stability, there was a house before. So, okay, so what happened? Let me go back and maybe connect some of these dots. But the stories that I kept hearing of, well, first, who's in the shelter? People that look like me. What happened? You start to hear these stories and all of a sudden it seemed like there were predetermined paths cut out for people. And most of those people looked like me or maybe they were Hispanic and that made me ask some questions, okay. right? So did I fail or did the system fail? And then once I educated myself on gentrification, I started understanding, you know, that housing is a commodity is a problem for a lot of people. Land as a commodity is a problem for one for a lot of people. And that was only reinforced, uh, fast forward a little bit, to the Occupy movement, where they gave us common language and started to talk about economic injustice and really drew a line, the 1% and the 99%. Housing as a commodity or land ownership being an inherent problem, that's a lot to take in. What I struggle with is that I honestly just don't know what to aim for. I mean, I'm, I'll say to myself, well, I want a, a system where human needs are being met, where, where people have access to health care. You know, the, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, you know, everybody has access to shelter, food, and then up the belongingness, and then on all the way up to self-actualization, you know, so that they, we can all benefit uh, from that person being able to do everything they possibly can. You know, just think of all of the geniuses out there. Uh, Malcolm X's autobiography, where he writes about the, the, the numbers runner who was able to remember all of these bets and all of this numerical information in his head without writing anything down. And I just remember reading that and it was very vivid to me. Like, you know, he's absolutely right. What could that man have done if he had just had another way to go in his community? This was success. He was a numbers runner. He had a job. He had an income. He had stuff. That was it. That was what he had to work with. But what if he could have been a, a mathematician or, or, or something like that? How, how much would we all have benefited from that? People have been mired in poverty in this country since it was created, certain groups of people, and it's never been addressed, right? So there's a separation. There's a, certain people have acquired all the wealth, and it's usually off the backs of different classes of people. So if that numbers runner were given opportunity, his life could have been very different, right? And I think, you know, there's a way to talk about land and housing that I learned from other countries, right? It's expressed differently where people believe in human rights. We don't necessarily believe in human rights here. So let's take Brazil. Brazil once was a dictatorship, which fell in the early 80s. And then Brazil got a new constitution. That fairly new constitution said land has to serve a social function, has to be growing food, has to be housing people. No more of stripping it of its resources as what was happening under the dictatorship. And no more just giving away land to wealthy people, to agroecology and others, right? So the MST, the Landless Workers Movement, organize themselves. They're traveling from the rural areas to the inner city an hour, two hours a day, and passing all these open swaths of land while they're basically living on the outskirts of town, away from everything. 
And they said, why are we doing this? Why don't we just take over this land? If our constitution says it has to be growing food and housing people, we can do that. So the movement, people started to move at night. The men would settle in their families and they started to work the land to grow food. Daylight comes, they start to take the bamboo, which is plentiful in Brazil, and build an abode. All of a sudden, here come more workers, right? You're starting to build community. When I go to work, Vincent watches my children. When Vincent goes to work, my family or some other family watches his children. So you're starting to build community. More people come. When people get sick, somebody takes the natural plants and heals the sick. Healthcare problems go away. Land all of a sudden is central to your existence, central to it meets your needs. So if we had access to land and it wasn't a commodity, our lives would change. Now, don't get me wrong, they're the wealthy. You want to be able to invest and buy, do your thing, but everybody's not living at your level. So how do we take certain pieces of land and give it to the community to control and govern in their own little way. And I think that's the world I envision, right? Community controlling land, making decisions of what that land is used for, not just giving it away to agriculture to plant and, and mass produce foods that are killing us and reproducing and constantly reproducing, but profiting off of that land while we're all dying of diseases, we can't figure out what happened. So fundamentally changing how we relate to land. And when I say land, I also think about the ocean and the sea, right? We could feed ourselves from the ocean also. So it's just, uh, it's, it's commoning land. It's going back to the old way, building community, a sense of values and principles. It's not the way we live right now. Oh, uh, okay. Uh so how would that work, say, in, in New York City? What so in New York City right now, I'm not, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Cooper Square. It is a piece of land on the Lower East Side that is something called the Community Land Trust. New York City has nothing to say about how that land is used. Only the people living on that land make the decisions. Oh. So they have a piece of land that was given to them in perpetuity, a 99-year lease. Let's just say they built cooperative apartments on top of that land. They built 50 units of cooperative apartments, and they each sold. Uh, Cooper Square became incorporated in 1984. They each sold for $50,000. You come along, Vincent, and you want to buy one. You pay your $50,000, and you pay X amount a month in maintenance. You have a decision on how that you part of the decision-making profit on what happened or process on what happens with that land. It's all governed by the people that live there. Now, Vincent, you got a great job and you decided you want more, you want more space and you want to sell your unit. You can only sell it for $50,000 because that's what you bought it for. Housing remains affordable. It's a different wow. model, right? It's taking land and housing and removing it from market forces, totally different way of living. Right now, the city and policymakers seem to think that the market is going to fix our world and solve all of our problems. No, it might solve some things for the 1%, but 99% of us are still going to be at their beck and call. And this was all learning from 2008, when our government, and particularly the Obama administration, said, it's okay for you to fail, Vincent, but Bank of America can't fail. So we're going to take your tax money, give to Bank of America to bail them out and J.P. Morgan Chase's and the city banks. They can't fail, but you can fail. And those banks got our tax money. They got they foreclosed on us. They evicted us in record numbers. And in New York, where you had to buy an insurance policy to guarantee that you were going to pay off that mortgage, they got paid off on the mortgage and they still have the house to put back on the market. So the market is screwing us over. We need to we need to look at this a little bit differently and break that system down. So it's why I keep saying now the banks got bailed out in 2008 and the people got sold out. We need to reverse that today. A mixed situation where some of the real estate is under community control and other is... I don't know, available. Right. Or, huh? 
The other is market rate. It's a system that works for me. You got a million bucks. You're, you know, Amazon guy. Go buy it what you want. But you can't buy this. This is ours. We govern this, right? Um, I think it can be done. And it starts to change a little bit. It changes our relationship to land, right? Particularly public land, Vincent. This is where we need to rise up as people when our city is trying to sell it off, especially in a place like New York City. If we have vacant property owned by the city, why are we exposing that to the private market? Right in a city where air rates are for sale, that means that land is commodified to a degree where you go straight up. So they're never going to give it over to you, but we need to demand it because it's public land, if that so exists. The city did a good job of selling it off and to maximize its profit. So the same people we elected in our representative democracy sold us out. You got to be real careful because politicians in New York City are in bed with the real estate development. It is just a known fact, right? I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. The, what, what we have is actually what I, the best term for it is a corporate duopoly. Um, there you go. The Republicans and the Democrats are actually working more together um, against each other. And in the pockets of the 1%, and basically both parties are working against us. Um, I, I give you a great example of that. So at the same time that I'm going through this transformation and learning about gentrification, the city is starting a practice of rezoning its way of gentrifying communities, right? So there was a rezoning of 125th Street in Harlem. At the time, Inez Dickens was the council member on the west side, and Maurice, uh, Melissa Mark Viverito was the council person on the east side of Harlem. There was a dividing line. They both voted in favor of that rezoning. There were only two council members in New York City that voted against it. Charles Barron in East New York, Brooklyn, and Tony Avella, who was then a councilman in Bayside, Queens, both said, we're not going to vote for this because it's not the right thing to do for this community, right? You're going to force out people that have lived there for years that have built a community. I would think that was replicated again in downtown Brooklyn on Flatbush Avenue. When they decided to rezone Flatbush Avenue, it was the fifth busiest downtown neighborhood in the country and the third busiest in New York. So what do you stand to gain? Except you want to cleanse whatever was there. You want to change it. So, you know, we need to push back. We need to understand what is happening through gentrification, how our cities are being transformed, how people are being displaced. We need to rise up and we need to somehow adhere to a set of values and principles that say, we're not going to just sit here. We're going to push back on this. Tell me more about your partners uh, for Dignity and Rights and what is it that you do there uh, personally as well as what the organization as a whole is trying to accomplish. Partners for Dignity and Rights is a, a 5013C not-for-profit organization that supports on-the-ground organizing around the country by creating reports, framing their issues, and um sort of supporting them with policy changes and policy demands that can be possibly be put into law. But we do that using a human rights frame, right? So we're all used to living on civil law in this country, but civil law doesn't always respect the fact that we're all humans and there are certain needs that be met, need to be met because you're human. I'm a staff volunteer is my title here. I like to be a volunteer, I like that title. But the former director, Kathy Albizer, is a lawyer and somebody who has supported me from the time I came into organizing and once met me at a protest on 116th Street, Madison Avenue in New York City. And she looked at me as I was negotiating with a police officer and said, you know what, you should come see me for lunch one day because you guys would be powerful if you wrap this work around a human rights frame. So the rest was history. That was... 12 years ago, and I'm still a staff volunteer with the organization. So I think I understand better the, the vision and the mission that you're working for, because we're 
We're talking about a, a, a more human-centered society. Great vision. I agree with that. Uh, the mission, as you're, uh, you're concentrated on working towards it through reconceiving the way our society thinks of land ownership. Is that, am I understanding you? Our fundamental relationship to land, um, but also I will say for the record, I'm a Marxist, right? I um, also believe that okay. the means of production is important and we don't understand that yet. We all go to work for a boss that is using us to the best of his ability and maximizing our labor to benefit himself and not us, right? So we need to think of cooperative models of employment where we own the factories and we control the means of production and that wealth stays in our community. So it's a re-envisioning of how we live, a new set of values and principles. I, I just can't function the old way, in my opinion. And I think a lot of people are rising up to this. You, you never heard people 10 years ago saying housing is a human right. They're saying it now. And I, I'll take you just across the country a little bit that I think makes it a little bit easier when you talk about human rights. So Detroit is the city that the automobile industry left and jobs left and people left. 1986, the population of Detroit was 2.1 million. Today, it's about 750,000 uh, 750, people. There's one supermarket in Detroit. So it's a place that looks barren. There are 82% of the city is African-American. 40% of those people live below the poverty line. Is a city that was built off the back of the automobile industry. Right. And all of a sudden, here come the robots. And the 70, you know, I got to see the Ford plant with some folks from Brazil back in 2016. And the first thing the union rep said, uh, see the windshield that they're putting on the cars? We used to get $75 an hour to do it. Now they pay two workers $16 an hour to make sure the robot doesn't overheat. <laughs> you know, so it's, yeah, well, you know, those conversations are happening, but they're happening in different places around the country. I, I have a friend who was a card-carrying liberal, believer in women's rights, gay rights, you know, on, on and down the, on the list. And his industry... Uh, kept getting more and more automated and the jobs kept getting sent over to, I think he was, it was basically Asia, India, uh, uh, the jobs were sent over to until he wound up being fired and then rehired again by the, by the same place, but now as a temp with no, uh, yeah. no, no insurance, nothing. Right. Right. And, he wound up getting so furious that he became a Trump supporter. He went to the way far. But the problem is Trump sold him a dream that, yeah. you know, he built his base. I'm going to bring those jobs back. No, you're not. They're going to stay overseas abusing labor, right? The union says, here, you have to pay the person $28 an hour. I could ship it to Malaysia and I only have to pay the worker $4 an hour. So the shipping costs to ship it over, the raw material, bring it back, I still make out, right? So it's it's a thing, you know, until we get a universal basic living wage, that's not gonna, you know, that's not gonna change. You know, I, I don't know how old you are, but you certainly know the history of this country. Manufacturing used to be the backbone of this country, but it's all disappeared. In the about 2011, Detroit went into bankruptcy, and there's a law in Detroit that says the governor can put an emergency manager in place to represent um, the city and make decisions on the city. Forget who you voted for. Your city council people now have no power. The emergency manager has the power. That emergency manager decided that the city is bankrupt because they're not people aren't paying their water bills. Right. So anybody he decided that anybody who was two hundred fifty dollars in arrears or two months behind on their water bill, you're no longer going to receive water. 
Well, I need water to survive. I'm a human being, right? We're on the Detroit River. What do you mean we can't have any water? Water has gotten commodified, right? It's problematic. And the same situation of bankruptcy happened in Flint, but something played out a little bit different in Flint. The emergency manager decided to switch the source and feed people poison water, right? But this is under the guise of this great democracy where an emergency manager took away your representative democracy powers and had one person make decisions for all the people in the city. So we have a problem in this country where we call it a democracy, but we don't we don't make decisions as a democracy. So it makes me fundamentally question our constitution if we were to take it deeper. You know, there's a lot of things involved in this. It's not just one little problem. It's a series of problems, but it's a series of problems that have existed since this country was created and created off the backs of African-American people. And then we came to a civil war where they wanted to profit in an area of industrialization, but then profit off the labor with low wages to those same folks and other folks. So I think we have to really, you know, if you care about this stuff, you really have to look back at the history of this country and challenge it. And that's what I've learned to do by, you know, visiting and working in other countries and understanding how social movements evolve there. I'll have to admit that until the George Floyd uh, killing and the subsequent movement that came out of it happened, I thought I knew United States history. And then, and I, I've put, it's on Facebook. I put it right on Facebook uh, uh, as one of my posts for Black History Month is I am so embarrassed and so furious at all of the parts of United States history that were completely left out of my education. And I remember learning about these things, what I learned as a child, and all of it completely left out. Either we lost our representative republic along the way, or more likely we've never really been one. It's not at the national scale. I choose the latter. I'm siding towards that at this point. And I think why we're seeing all of the freaking out, being the technical term, is that we are in danger of becoming an actual multiracial democracy here. And I think that's got a lot of people completely terrified, blindly terrified. This is something that I've been giving a lot of thought since 2016, since November of, since 11-9, as me and some friends like to call it, you know, Trump being elected and realizing, whoa, things are not what you have been telling yourself, that, that what's going on is nothing like what you imagine. And that really actually began my adult political education, uh, I, I have to reluctantly admit. For you, Vincent, um, that's part of that transformation process. Um, the young folks would say you got woke, right? <laughs> you know, and that's, you know, I think that's what happened. In, in a, in a, and, and, you know, it's not like I was a jingoist, right winger, racist, anything like that. I was a Oh, hell, man, I was a card printing liberal. I didn't just carry the cards. I printed them up for other people. We're a founding member of the Vermont Pride Center, all this other activist stuff, and yet I just had no clue. To anybody listening, you really can have a clue about what's going on over here, and you can really, really be well-educated about this over here and you just were never taught about and never noticed what was going on over here so it's nobody has to berate themselves or think less of themselves or 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 anything like that you just have to shift your attention 
Robert, I think that's I'm that's what I'm calling for, and I think that's what you're calling for too. I, I I would agree. I you know sometimes you get a little booster shot, and I'll take you back to 2007. I'm coming out of shelter. I joined the group Picture the Homeless in New York, and I get invited to a housing seminar at Columbia University. And I'm sitting on a panel with a distinguished group of panels. I'd never spoken publicly like I'm doing now. It's the first time I've ever come out with my views publicly. And to my right, um, there were three other panelists. The first person to my right was Dr. Peter Marcuse, a professor emeritus from Columbia University, urban planner, lawyer, very well-known, son of well-known uh, writer Herbert Marcuse. To his right was Brenda Stokely, longtime union organizer with DC 37 in New York, Municipal Workers Union, and one of the founders of the municipal, uh, uh, one of the founders of the, uh, the, the movement, the Black Workers Movement, uh, Million Workers March Movement, forgive me, the Million Workers March Movement. And to her right was a gentleman by the name of Ed Ott who at the time was the director of the Central Labor Council in New York, which was an umbrella over all the unions. And it was there that I made the statement that I made earlier, and I say, pushed me into really deeply into thinking about this. And I made a statement through my talk. First, I was nervous. I had never spoken publicly. You know, um, they had me speak last, these distinguished speakers, and they make me speak last. So <laughs> I'm sweating bullets. I'm soaking wet. I say what I have to say. Peter Marcuse puts his hand on my thigh and goes, great job. And then there was a professor in the audience, a distinguished professor of geography and anthropology from the City University of New York Graduate Center by the name of Neil Smith. And I made uh, the statement that has stuck with me ever since. I said, gentrification leads to displacement, which leads to homelessness, which leads to criminalization. And Neil Smith was in the audience, stood up and said, say that again. And I repeated it. And at the end of the discussion, he walked up to me and he says, I really would like to know how you developed that theory. I would like to invite you to lunch and we could sit down and talk. And uh, the rest is, as they say, is history. He invited me up to the grad center to lecture his students. And I told him I can't lecture PhD students. And he looked me back in the eye and he said, you taught me, you're gonna teach my students. And um, he Good. brought me up to the grad center. And that just led to other professors that he knew calling upon me and those professors giving me books around history and said, the one thing we can do, Rob, from the tower, we can give the theory but you have the lived experience and you found a way to seamlessly connect it with the theory. So you can, a lot of spaces that were left in prior education, you can fill those spaces. And it's your job to take students into the community from these PhD students and let them talk to other folks like you and then bring people from the community into this program so that we can all engage in a conversation together and think about some of this stuff and really articulated in ways that are meaningful. So, you know, I give a lot of credit. Neil Smith passed away in 2012, but I think that propelled me. You know, that was the final part of that transformation was Neil sort of anointing me as a as a teacher, a position I never saw myself in. And all of a sudden he's like, you know, there's my students. Talk to them, you know, teach them, you know. So I work now with a program at the new school called Design and Urban Ecologies, where I work with young folks and bring them into the community and try to understand. And I work a lot at the CUNY Grad Center. I work at the new school. So I'm working with some of these young students who are saying, I want a different world, right? So young students who have tech skills are building an app for landlords that discriminate against people who are poor, who have vouchers. So there's income discrimination that comes on. So, and I'm not saying you, but somebody comes to rent, let's say you understand this, and they have a voucher. Oh, we don't take vouchers. Well, the law says you have to, but people are discriminated against. So this gives you an app. We start to collect data. Once you have the data, the trends, you can't deny the trends once the data is collected. So young folks like that are saying, okay, I was privileged. I went to school. I got an education. I have these tech skills and these mapping skills. 
What can I do to make a better society? And they go into neighborhoods, have conversations with folks who are struggling. And, okay, this is what I can do. I went to school. I got an education. I feel that you were wronged or your, you know, your community was wrong. Let's try to make it right. Let's work together and see what we can do. So I think there are fantastic things going on, but I do think we take a misstep as a movement in this country trying to gather that type of uh, try to engage in those conversations. You always hear me talk about political education. And these are the things I learned from Brazil and places where the political education is part of your culture. It's ongoing. So progressive political education that happens in social justice spaces, you know, is done. They do a better job of it outside of the U.S. What I try to do now with university students is take my lived experience my family's experience as African-Americans and share it with those young folks and say, okay, this is the world I was brought up in. This is what it looked like. Very unfair. You see some of the results now. You now have the tools to make change. You figure out, I can't make the change. It won't happen in my lifetime, but you know, you guys are better prepared than I was for it. Right. So, you know, and I think that's, that's all we could do. Right. You know, um, you know, I think speak out about it. Yeah, that's that's good. But we need to educate young folks because we want to leave the world better than we found it. The young minds today, Vincent, are really incredible. You know, we talking about debt and housing leading to perpetual debt, but education is another one, right? When we were growing up, go get your law degree, go get your medical degree, go get your master's degree, and you're going to make six figures. You know what? You go get those degrees now and you got $200,000 worth of loan repayments and you'll probably be paying the rest of your life. So the American dream is just not what it once was. And 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 if people buy into it, they're going to go into perpetual debt and struggle for the rest of their lives. You basically started out as a, a off-the-rack capitalist. You know, the American dream is capitalism. You know, work hard, invest, blah, blah, blah get stuff, everything will be okay. But at some point, you made the, the leap to Marxism. I was raised at a time when that was a big taboo. You didn't, you didn't, there was nothing good about Marxism. I don't know much about Marx's actual theories, having only read some excerpts of his work. I, I got to be honest, I've seen horrible things done in these countries in the name of Marxism. What would you say to, to me or people like me who hear Marxist? And what, what, what would you say to us? I would start out by saying in this country, We've conflated Marxism, socialism, and, and communism all together. We've meshed them together, and that's a problem. Marx focus on the means of production and what we as employees, what role we play in production and at what cost. And that's what he focused on. So I started to understand as a factory worker I'm being abused, there's profit being made off my back, but I'm not realizing the benefits of that profit. Somebody else is. So that's the fundamental understanding. We went through a process in this country with communism, something totally different. Understand it? I, I think that and socialism, which I kind of lean more to socialism, and you being from Vermont, you probably understand Bernie and, and a lot about socialism. But I think a lot of people, have mixed up the three. And this is why political education is so important. Let's separate them. Let's get educated. Let's learn what each of them means. So when you talk about Marxism, you start to reinvent the way you produce things, right? And that's done in cooperative ways. Mondragon in Spain is a huge cooperative that we've learned from where the employees make the decision on what they're going to produce how much they sell it for, and who will benefit from the profits or what they do with the profits. That's not how it is if you work for Ford. The profits go to Ford. Right? So it's a different way. It's a different economic model. 
right? And, you know, we have small cooperatives in New York. You know, in the Bronx, there's a big cooperative model developing Green Workers Cooperative and other places, uh, Park Slope Food Cooperative here in Brooklyn. You know, so folks are starting to understand this. But, you know, when you have a community that's not educated, we don't understand what it means. So Marxism looks at the means of production, right? Communism and socialism are two different things. So until we're educated, we don't know. Yeah, I was a capitalist and, you know, I wanted to acquire things and acquire real estate and rent it out. And, you know, I would benefit from all of the profits. But, you know, it is something inherently wrong when I own six houses and in front of one of them, there are three people sleeping on the sidewalk, right? So why shouldn't I share that space? Because I'm human and I believe in community with that person that's laying on the street. So it's a different way of thinking, uh, basically, Benson. It's, uh, it's a set of values and principles that we adhere to, but people need to change inside. And what happened to me, laying on the streets of Miami at one point in the sun without eating for four days, right? Having nothing to eat. And I walked into a shopping center. And as I'm walking into the shopping center, I'm half dizzy. And by the way, it was the shopping center where that Kmart was that I talked about earlier. Um, but this elderly couple is walking towards me. They must have been 80 years old. And the woman looks at me because one eye probably went in one direction. The other eye went in another direction and said to me, to hombre in Spanish, are you hungry? And I said, yes. And she handed me a plate of rice, beans, and chicken. So part of that transformation was me realizing that everybody on the street begging isn't a bum. As my dad would say when me when he took me and my brothers, my two brothers, for a haircut, and we come out of the barbershop, and the guy is standing in front of the barbershop asking for 50 cents. And my dad's automatic answer was, He's a bum. He doesn't want to work. So my dad bought into that narrative of the American dream. I'm not mad at my father. He wanted to do the best he could for his family. But it, he, we got individualized. Now, I, you fast forward to 50 years later, whatever it was, I laid on the streets for four days. I'm not passing anybody without asking them if they're hungry. Right? I just can't do it because I've been there. Right? I, I got, you know, maybe it's a playing on the show. I got humanized. It changed me. It transformed me. Right. I look at the world differently. I just don't accept what I was taught. Right. What I was taught wasn't necessarily the right things, whether it be from family, whether it be the lack of uh, proper education in school, whatever it is. I never learned about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in school, but that pocket size handbook goes with me wherever I go because it says something. So why do we have exceptionalism in this country that we don't adhere to whatever the rest of the international world can adhere to? Oh, because we're this democracy? Sorry, I got problems with this democracy. Okay, so I'm conflating Marxism, socialism, and communism. What they have in Europe, that's what I'm looking to as the, the model for at least the next step for the United States. It Does that... Is that in line with your thinking? We saw from this pandemic that our country was able to give everybody $600 twice, right? Or a majority of the people. Why can't we, like many of the Nordic countries say, there's a minimum standard of living in the wealthiest country in the world. And if your family is unable to earn that, then here, here's $10,000 a year. You get a check. What's wrong with that? Why is somebody who invests in Wall Street not paying taxes? Why does GE say we don't have to pay taxes? That needs to change. We need a redistribution of wealth. We have the means in this country. We need to think differently and redistribute. So I would think that we want to focus on production, what our labor means in society and how those decisions are made and start to push in that direction. Right. I'm not so much of a social capitalist. And I'll give you another. Uh, here's a good story because you're in Vermont. So the organization I'm working for right now, Partners for Dignity and Rights, worked with the Vermont Workers Center for years and won universal health care in Vermont. And I believe 2015, 
And after a protracted struggle over four years, they turned around. The governor said, how are you going to pay for it? Well, the movement hadn't organized economists to figure out what it's going to cost and where the money could come from. And it fell in a hole. But you got there. So we have to think outside of the box. You know, and we have to understand how we can redistribute wealth. The wealth exists in this country just needs to be redistributed. We've never addressed poverty in this country, right? Right. No. That's the fundamental problem. Poverty. People are no. impoverished. You never have. But why? When the rest of the world is going, that's the wealthiest country in the world. 37% of the wealth in this country is held by 1% of the people. I, I actually thought that they had quite a bit more than that. So it may have increased, but you know, I'm going back to probably, you know, when I was studying those numbers around 2017 or so, it could have increased. I wouldn't doubt it, right? But you know, that's a bizarre, that's a bizarre equation, right? You know, and and it it just says there needs to be a shift. And when a company like GE will stand on its soapbox and say we don't pay taxes because we don't have to, what? We need to start to put the right people in office, stop buying into the nonsense, right? And this is where the democratic socialists come. It's not quite the way it should be. I wish Bernie had just said I'm a straight out socialist. I would have preferred Bernie to say that rather than democratic socialist, because I kept scratching my head and said, what is a democratic socialist? But I do think he had all of the right ideas. I do think we've seen a shift um, because of Bernie and him running. And now you have people like AOC and people, you know, we have a we've elected democratic socialists into New York state government in record numbers in this last election. I housing organizers I've worked with are now in the New York State Assembly and Senate. And it's, you know, so people, you know, they were dirty words once upon a time, but they're not so dirty anymore. And you're absolutely right about the young people. The young people are saying, hey. Socialism doesn't sound so bad. Hey, look, I used to be completely against uh, medic universal health care. Completely, 100 against. I was like, you're nuts. Nothing will get done. Then I got older. I got sick. And I had to use my insurance on a regular basis. And then you find out how incredibly screwed up the whole situation is. I mean, I, I, I talk of you know... I, lived experience not of what the magnitude of of what you've had i I get it yeah that's my lived experience i was like oh my god you know you get this bill for four thousand dollars and you're like what okay so then you appeal to it and who are you appealing to your insurance company and what do you know they decide that your appeal has no merit and now I, i i so then i changed I was like, okay, look, there, there is no, and that's my that's my biggest problem with the right right now, Rob. They got nothing. Well, so nothing. I, I think this is this is why I say it's a fight that may not change while we're alive, but we need to make the younger folks aware of what's happening, and they are, they are woke, and I think healthcare is the other big issue, right? In the wealthiest country, so I told you, 2015, I fall off the boat in Brazil, they take me to the hospital, no bill. Right. Canada has has medical care for everybody. We laugh at Cuba. Cuba has health care for everybody. Right. Cuba's not struggling with coronavirus. Right. But, you know, we need to think outside of the box. Right. This system is not working for a majority of the people. It needs to change. It fundamentally wow. needs to change. Listen, I wish I had more to for, for the young people, but I'm I'm still thinking in the box. I really am. I mean, I, 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 you know, it's the best I can do at the moment. But you just shared your healthcare experience. You just shared your healthcare experience. That's 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 giving the younger folks a tool that they need to make the change. Your experiences, sharing stories, is nothing more powerful than sharing stories. And that's why people say, "Weren't you embarrassed to be homeless?" Hell no, it's the system that caused that, right? I'm not embarrassed. I'm going to explain to you where the flaws are in the system, right? That's what we need to be embarrassed about. You're not going to embarrass me with that, so I'll share it with the world because I don't want anybody to go through what I went through, right? So let's get these stories out there. Oh, so the system is not addressing poverty or the system 
it, the shelter system in New York, although it's this industrial complex, doesn't seem to be housing people in a way it should. It seems that people are in a, re, a state of recidivism where they go into a shelter, then they go into transitional housing for two years, back on the street, back into transitional housing. That was what set me off. And said, when I came out of shelter and I said to people, you won't, I was in there for 10 months and they looked at me and said, you only in there for 10 months? Uh, so-and-so was in there for six years. That's That was the trigger, man. It's a system that's broken. It's a system that's broken and people are profiting off a broken system. But Prisons then, there's people making money off right. keeping people in the shelters. So there's no incentive for anybody to no. help people. No. Except the, the people okay. that built the prisons and the people that built the shelters. Okay. Okay. All right. So you've kind of already answered one of my questions. You're, you're telling me what I have to, to, to give to the young people. That's of value because I can tell a story, uh, that I can do another question I have. Okay. So Marxism conflated with socialism and communism. Uh, where does somebody like me who was conditioned in another time and has very strong reactions to these words. Where does somebody like me go to find out more about this stuff? You go to a website called Democracy at Work, an economic update. You start to watch Economic Update. It is run by a professor by the name of Richard Wolf, who was Harvard and Yale trained, went to school with Janet Yellen, but has totally opposite views of Janet Yellen. He also recently wrote two essays that are easy to digest, and they are books I take into the community on a regular basis. One is Understanding Socialism, and the other one is Understanding Marxism. They're about 100 pages each, very simple text to digest. And then once you start to watch Professor Wolf online and learn from him, I think you'll become educated in a way you never thought possible. That's doable. You, you, I can get into that and then have stuff to think about. What we're trying to do is create a better, a nurturing society in that nature, right? Taking care of one another. We've gotten away from that, right? And it's, it's big business and corporate landlords and the banks and everything being uh, a market commodity that has gotten us to this place, right? And then it's also the means of production, right? Understanding that capitalism, the way it operates, it puts us at a disadvantage. Only the 1% are gonna benefit. 99% of us are asked out and we're the hamster on the wheel, right? We're not gonna get anywhere. We just keep running after it until we get exhausted and you know, life ends. And then you know, we pass it on. We've got the vision. We've got the mission. We know what your job is. I'd like to hear, uh, may, uh, maybe define some terms for me. When you do human rights organizing, there are a set of values and principles that you should adhere to. And I like to use the color taupe, T-A-U-P-E, the color beige, T for transparency, A for accountability, U for universality, P for participation, E for equity. There should be transparency in those decisions that are made that are going to affect our lives. There should be accountability for those decisions. They should be universal, whether I'm documented, undocumented, LBGTQ, white, black, green. It should work for all of us participation. We should have the right in a real democracy to participate in those decisions that are going to affect our lives. And E, it should bring equity to all of us. So it's, it's a different world. It's a different way of living. You know, our democracy doesn't allow for a lot of that. What about how, how this works internationally? We're still up against, say, China. But China has slave and near slave labor. They've got concentration camps. They don't like you. They throw you in a camp. They put you to work. They can make goods cheaper than than anywhere else. No unions, no health insurance. You, you know, you get nothing. 
if we're spreading democracy around the world, it's not us sending planes in the army over there, because if you want to challenge China, you'll lose, right? China owns the Pacific Rim, right? But all we want to do is militarize everything and protect ours, right? Why doesn't our voices go out and say, we want a society that is different than the one that we've lived in, and that the monstrous society that we help create? strong message. I don't know if we'll ever get there. I know we won't get there in my lifetime, but I think we need to keep pushing in that direction. China's not going to change what they're doing overnight. They're abusing labor or they're doing manufacturing and they're a capitalist society, just like we once were, only they carried the abusing labor part a little bit further than we did, right? You know, they just... They keep all their manufacturing over there, and then they steal ideas and plans and learn how to do it cheaper and faster, right? But I do think we have the ingenuity here, but we're so in-depth on stealing labor and abusing labor that we can't produce anything here, right? So we've become a country that can't produce. We're a country that is based on service industry, right? We like to go out and spend money and have somebody serve us. Well, if the wealthy people didn't have somebody to serve them and had to do the work themselves, Maybe some things would change. It's being chipped away at as you and I sit here having this conversation. You know, we already talked about different people going into government, different voices, different actors. And there needs to be more of that. People have the power to vote. If we're a true democracy, get up off your ass. And I think people got a torch under their asses this past November, right? They saw what they went through the last four years and said, no, 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 that's not going to work, right? We need something different, right? Record turnout. But what's problematic, there still was quite a bit of turnout for that problem, right? So, you know, the work is not over yet. The work continues. And I I notice that the, nobody among the Democrats is discussing uh, repealing the, the tax scam that the Republicans passed in 2017. No. Well, of, no. In, maybe not at a particular level, but the conversation... It was being pushed forward, right? So um, there's a campaign here in New York called Invest in New York, and that's what it's all about, you know, taking back those tax breaks from the rich and, you know, uh, reinvestment in communities. And it's, it's not like, and even a new social contract, it's not like this is something that is difficult. The New Deal was a new social contract, right? We've done something similar in the past, right? So we have to, we just have to think, right? Conditions are a little bit different, but I'm pretty sure we're also smarter than we were back in the 30s, right? So, you know, we can do it if there's political will and people willing to separate themselves from development and big money and corporate interests, right? And just say, okay, we're going to just change this and level the playing field. Again, it's not all going to change overnight. But people's voices are being heard now, and things are playing out a whole lot different than they were. So we'll see where it goes. If things can get to the point where after 2008, and, I, and I'm listening to somebody, and, the, and a commentator and some other commentator says, well, you know, that's socialism. I'm thinking, well, you know, that's, if that's socialism, that doesn't sound so bad. So if if I'm able to get to that point, then there's there's bloody well hope for for as you said, you couldn't say those words ten years ago. But you know what? Those words are at every protest march right now, right? So you know, so and it and again it's about education. I guarantee you if you read those two essays. You're going to be fascinated and you'll dig more and more into that Democracy at Work website. I call Richard Wolf. He's a professor emeritus from um, University of Ma Massachusetts at Amherst. He's been a longtime mentor. He teaches it currently as a visiting scholar at the New School in teaching. But, you know, I, I constantly learn from him and have interacted with him. And it's, it's really opened my eyes to a lot, right? And, you know, you're never too old to learn, Vincent. That's the one thing that that transformation did for me, right? You know, at some point, people say, well, I went to school. I'm done with that. Well, you know what? Honestly, I should learn till I go to my grave. Lifelong student, man. I'm, yeah, I'm right. with you. It, it, it's, it's the only way to, to go, go. Life is constantly learning, especially from those young folks. That's right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by what I've been seeing out there and the energy 
You know, I work with this anti-eviction mapping project. These folks stood in this office and they put up these maps and they create websites like in a night. And I'm like, holy cow. Yeah. What the what? The what? The who? Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. It's just incredible. But, you know, whatever you need from, oh, you need office space? Here you go. You got it. <laughs> so, you know, hopefully, you know, it, it's those folks that are going to make the change. But again, you and I can only give them the tools to make that change to go out there. That's, so. that's what we're talking about, among other things. There you go. That's our project here, sir. There you go. First, one of the things that we want to do is we want you and your work to be chronicled. We want the we want it to be part of the story going forward. That's a very important part of our work here. Final words. You know, I came into the world. I existed in a world in a certain way. And halfway through my life, I realized this is not what everybody told me it was. And I always go back to a, an eighth grade American history teacher banging his hand on his desk and telling us American made products are the best. And then I got my first new car at the age of 17, a Monte Carlo. And after 30,000 miles, the windows wouldn't go up and down right. And I'm like, okay, well, so much for American made products. But I think, you know, I learned about human rights and human needs through a lived experience. And I think it's important how we live and how you connect that to theoretical is important. It's important to connect those two, the theoretical and the practical, but it's also important for us to share our stories and share with younger folks. The world is not going to change in front of us, Vincent, but if we leave it better than we found it, we've done a good job. Thank you so much for watching this video all the way to the end. This has been Vincent Downing for When Humanists Attack, talking to Robert Robinson. When Humanists Attack, we do it with videos, with art, with literature, and more than any other thing, by living through example. If you like our work, subscribe, click the bell, take a look at our Patreon. Have a good one, everybody.